Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week, the brain cells that map where you are also know what you're listening to. A neuron that during spatial navigation might be active in the northeastern corner of the room would instead be active at C-sharp. And how trade is draining the world's groundwater supplies. In some parts of India, it might be just one or two decades that it's going to become impossible to use it. Plus a new compound that can harvest the sun's energy and keep the costs down. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 30th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. If brain regions had catchphrases, the hippocampuses would be location, location, location. For decades, neuroscientists have known that the hippocampus is active when a rat navigates its way through a maze, for instance. And studies of the hippocampus in London taxi drivers show a boost in size that's linked to their exhaustive knowledge of the city's streets. But a new study suggests that thinking of the hippocampus as purely a spatial navigation hub is a bit one-dimensional. Or, OK, two-dimensional. Neuroscientist Dmitry Aronov and his colleagues at Princeton University in New Jersey thought they'd take the rats in their lab to a whole new dimension and see how their hippocampus got on with sound. Here's Dmitry. We don't always navigate through physical space. For example, a jazz musician navigates by transitioning between musical chords. The relevant feature of experience for a jazz musician at any given point in time isn't spatial location. It's the musical chord that the musician is playing at that moment in time. So we essentially trained our rats to play a very rudimentary musical instrument in which they used a joystick to change the frequency of sound in their environment. So it's definitely not jazz, but uh, in essence, it's similar because a musician learn, might learn a sequence of sounds and the musician might learn that a particular sound follows another sound. And in our case, rats learned that there's a sweeping frequency of sounds where higher frequency follow lower frequencies and there is a reward at the end. And what did you see when the rats were listening to this uh, sliding scale of, of frequencies? What we saw is that The same neurons that classically are known to respond to the animal's location were instead responding to particular frequencies of sound. So a neuron that during spatial navigation might be active in the northeastern corner of the room would instead be active at C-sharp. And it would really be the same neuron that would get repurposed depending on which task the animal was performing. It seems mad that the brain would use the same neuron for these two wildly different uh, concepts. And that is, in a way, bewildering because we are 
taught to think about the brain as having very specialized parts, a part that's responsible for sound, a part that's responsible for spatial location. To think that there is a brain area that repurposes itself for whatever task is relevant to the animal, I think is the main kind of fundamental finding of our work. And I suppose that anything that varies on a scale, temperature or light, could be coded like this. Perhaps, and I would take it even further. When we think, we transition between different concepts. We know that one concept is related to another concept, and we can do mental navigation where we transition between different abstract concepts in order to solve problems. So when people first observed maps in the hippocampus that had to do with space, perhaps they, only, they just called them maps because they happened to be looking at space, and they're actually much more general. When a rat is performing a behaviour like that, the most salient, the most relevant feature of experience to the rat is his location. So these brain areas represented location perhaps because that was the relevant variable. That could translate to, you know, concepts and kind of abstract ideas, couldn't it, as well as it could sounds or, or physical location? I think so. It may be hard to test this idea in rats. Well, you've already taught them to play an instrument. I mean, you could at least try and teach them to philosophize. It's a big leap. <laughs> what, what will you do next? I mean, is there any other dimension you'd like to test? Well, rather than going to in, in a direction of testing other primitive types of dimensions, I, I think an interesting uh, direction would be to test navigation through more abstract spaces. Perhaps something that's not as simple as frequency, which is changing in a monotonic fashion, but concepts that are linked to one another. Do you think that like, if this study and other, uh, other studies find the sa a, a similar thing, that we might end up reconceptualizing how we think the brain actually works, rather than thinking about it as lots of different modules that do different, very specific things, there might be these modules that just do very, something very abstract? Well, I think that's exactly what we're shooting at. We'd like to go beyond the thinking that there are specialized brain areas, each of which performs a particular kind of a function. If you think about your computer, there are components of your computer that are designed for arbitrary computation. Your hard drive can store images, or it can store movies, or it can store text. The individual components of your hard drive are not specialized for particular types of information. And there may be neural circuits that function in highly flexible ways as well. At least that's what our data seems to suggest. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a good analogy as well, because presumably people who are interested in building computers that look a little bit like brains should also take this into account, possibly already are, factoring in these networks that deal with more abstract information and concepts. I, I agree. I think that may be a way we should start thinking about artificial networks as well. That was Dmitry Aronov, who did this work at Princeton and has now started a lab at Columbia University. The music was called Faster Does It by Kevin MacLeod. I'm surprised it wasn't called Rat Maninoff's Second. Very good. Rat King Cole? Rat Stevens? OK, you're pushing your luck. Massive attack? All right, you can have that one. Coming up in the research highlights, giggling birds and ribosome drugs. First, a study corrals the far-flung effects of trade on groundwater depletion. Digging up fossil fuels and burning them to power our lives is leading to dramatic climate change. But fossil fuels aren't the only unsustainable resource we're pulling up from the depths of the earth. Ever heard of fossil water? 
Fossil water is ancient groundwater, the gigantic underground water supply lurking beneath our feet. In recent years, groundwater reservoirs, including fossil water supplies, have been increasingly tapped into for agriculture, so much so that they're now under threat all over the world. Carol Dalen from University College London here in the UK has written a paper in this week's Nature exploring how these water supplies are being exploited and how economics is driving the change. She joined me in the studio to explain more. Groundwater is uh, stored in, in the underground, so in some reservoirs that we call aquifers. They actually represent most of the available uh, fresh water that we can use on Earth. It's 99% of fresh water. And this groundwater is really important for various aspects of the water cycle, but it's also important for industry. And groundwater is used a lot in agriculture. Tell me a little bit about how that works. We actually know that about 85% of uh, overuse of groundwater is for irrigation. People originally irrigate with uh, water from a lake or from a river, but more and more recently people have been digging wells and pumping the water um, to the surface. Now you said 99% of the water and you know fresh water supplies are in groundwater. It seems like there's plenty to go around but there are over-exploitation problems that are coming from these sort of, these sort of actions. Yeah so the other important thing is that um, the what we call the residence time of the water in different reservoirs is very different. For groundwater it's really long, it's over a century on average, whether for surface water it's a few years. So some of these groundwater are, are what we call fossil groundwater. So they are basically never going to be renewed in our lifetimes. And um, what does this come down to eventually then? When are these limited groundwater supplies going to run out? It is difficult to know exactly how much water is stored in these uh, aquifers, which is what you need to know on top of the rate of depletion to estimate when it will run out. Some research is ongoing in that to answer that question, but we know that also the main uh, relevant factor is basically the depths, the length of the well that you have to dig to, to pump the water, and then it becomes more and more costly to pump it. And so in, in some parts of India, it might be just one or two decades that it's going to become impossible to use it. Yeah, you mentioned those two factors there, the sort of climatic factors and then also the economic factors. And you've been looking specifically at those economic factors in this paper. So you've been looking at how trade influences that groundwater depletion. Tell me a little bit about what the key players are here. Yeah, so we found those, those sort of uh, groundwater depletion clusters, as we call them. So the countries are United States, Mexico, China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. So those countries are all producers of uh, food irrigated with non-renewable groundwater. And they also import from partners who also use um, this type of water. And so they are both exposed in terms of their economy and their local supply, but also in terms of their imports. And actually for Saudi Arabia and Iran, they all depend on some of the most overexploited aquifers in the world. And I suppose that makes sense. So these countries have very uh, low rainfall, they're very hot, um, they might have to use their groundwater supplies to grow crops. But let's take a sort of a different look and look at a country like the United States, for example, which is also one of these sort of um, groundwater depletion clusters that you've, you've mentioned. This is a country where certain parts of the country have a, lot, a large amount of rainfall and others have less. And yet they still are importing food from countries which are overexploiting their groundwater supplies and they're overexploiting their own in the food that they're exporting. That, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Yeah, so actually the reason why it doesn't make sense uh, when you know about the groundwater issue is that 
this issue is not reflected in the price of the food. So in the case of the U.S. imports, it imports, for example, citrus crops, so lemons, oranges from Mexico. And uh, they are actually in uh, some part irrigated with overexploited aquifers, but that's not put in the cost. And so we just keep importing them and consuming them. If we as a people, as, as a global community, want to try to, to prevent this over overexploitation of groundwater, of aquifers, what's the solution? Is there an economic one? Is this, is this what you're trying to get at in your study? Well, we are trying to provide the first step, which is the quantification. And I think there's still some work to do on that. And if we want to eventually go to uh, reflecting that in the price or including it more uh, integratively in the management of the resource, uh, we need to measure it. We've talked about sustainable and unsustainable groundwater. Should the countries that are currently overexploiting their aquifers, should they just not be growing food? You know, is there a way for sustainable agriculture to happen there if the way that they're currently getting the irrigation they need to grow this food, if that's unsustainable? Farming is providing livelihoods to a lot of people, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And so it's difficult to just go and say, look, what you're doing is bad for the environment. You have to stop because all these people won't have just their food supply and their jobs. So again, I think we have to start Try and first of all be aware of the the issue, and try to uh, find solutions to reduce this use of water. So there are other solutions than just stopping growing crops. You can change the type of crops that you plant. So there are regions where you know more native uh, cultivars are better adapted. Uh, you can also save a lot of water by having more efficient irrigation system with less leakage. Um, this kind of measures. That was Carol Dalen from University College London, joining me in the studio here at Nature Towers. You can find out more about her work with groundwater and trade at nature.com forward slash nature. Just before we get to the research highlights, there's still time to vote for us in the Listener's Choice category of the British Podcast Awards. That's britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Just search for nature and fill in your name. Right. As promised, here are those highlights, read by Sharmini Bundell. The sound of others laughing often makes humans giggle. And researchers know that in other mammals, joy can be infectious. A team wondered whether the Kia parrot, famed for its playful nature, might also get the giggles off its friends. So they recorded the warbling sound that the parrots make when they're having fun. When the researchers played this back to wild Kias, it inspired the birds to start playing. So it seems laughter is even more contagious than previously thought. For the full paper, head to Current Biology. A newly discovered compound can interrupt the cell's protein production line. It works by targeting the ribosome, the machine that translates genes into proteins. Crucially, it only halts the ribosome when it's making one specific protein, without preventing most other proteins from being made. The protein it acts on, called PCSK9, manages cholesterol levels. Feeding the compound to rats reduced their cholesterol levels. Throwing a spanner in the ribosome like this could help develop new drugs. The full study is in PLOS Biology. The sun's light is an everlasting energy supply and there's ways of turning it into electricity. But with many of these methods, you need rare and expensive metals. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could just use one of the most abundant metals on the planet instead? Well, Kerry spoke to the researchers who have been doing just that. Many chemical compounds can absorb light. They can take in photons from a light source and convert them into a train of electrons, which is pretty helpful if you're trying to build a solar cell or some other device that can harvest light and turn it into electricity. Or the materials can take the photons in and emit them again a bit later, making the materials photoluminescent. That's handy if you want to make LED displays, for instance. Of course, there's a sticking point. Here's chemist Petter Persson of Lund University in Sweden. Many materials are, are, that are used, these light harvesting complexes, they very often have used rare and inexpensive uh, metals. Petter is talking about elements like ruthenium, a rare earth metal. There really isn't very much available, about 5,000 tonnes total. Naturally then, chemists would like to find some magical material that worked just as well, but which they could make out of something much more ordinary. And it's really been a driving force for this project from the start that we want to see if we can use this really earth-abundant element. Uh, that's If we get there, this will be very suitable for, for large-scale um, energy applications. Petter Persson, together with his Lund University colleague Kenneth Vernmark and their team, went to the other end of the abundance scale for a new piece of work reported in Nature. They've used one of Earth's most abundant elements. It forms 5% of the Earth's crust. One billion tonnes of it is mined every year. Here with the answer to the quiz is Felix Castellano, a chemist at North Carolina State University, not part of the Swedish team. Iron is the most abundant transition metal um, on the entire periodic table in terms of how much you'll find in the Earth's crust. So, so iron is, is just readily available. So if you could make the transition to iron from these like ruthenium and iridium types of uh, transition metal complexes, uh, you'd be you know, really taking a good step in the right direction. And, and that is, I think, the, the, the main thing that we have actually managed. This is Kenneth Vernmark speaking. We have been able to tune the iron to resemble ruthenium. The team took iron and joined onto it a kind of chemical scaffold that they'd carefully designed. The scaffold basically holds the iron in a configuration where exposure to light forces it to accept an electron, which excites it. Once the compound is excited, its electrons start to move, and it can transfer this charge to another material, which can carry it on to its final use, say, in an electrical grid. But there was one more problem to solve here. Complexes like this need to hold on to their excited state for long enough to transfer charge to another material that can then make use of it. In the past, researchers couldn't manage to keep iron-based compounds excited for long enough. But here they've measured the longest excited state lifetime ever seen for iron, 100 picoseconds. OK, that's only 100 trillionths of a second, but it's long enough, says Kenneth Vernmark. For the eye of a human being, you can't... Uh observe such such uh, uh, a lifetime but in 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 the in the world of molecules 100 picoseconds that we have here it's a lot of time there is clearly no shortage of iron to use for this purpose and the scaffold is made from common elements too like nitrogen and carbon but could this scaffold be bolted on to other metals will it work in other scenarios that could be useful if other metals could hold on to an excited state for even longer or have other useful properties. Felix Castellano again. Um, I think the jury's sort of out on whether or not 
it's going to be broadly applicable or not. Um, or this, this ligand might just be perfectly suitable for iron-3, and then it isn't going to be suitable for anything else. It's just until other people or this group starts to, uh, you know, starts to explore the possibilities, it's very hard to extrapolate, um, you know, any new predictions. At the very least, there's likely to be a proliferation of new research exploring these new designs. This paper is sort of poised to at least challenge the community to, to like seek out alternatives using these concepts. Felix Castellano there at North Carolina State University and the author of a News and Views article on the new paper. That's at nature.com slash nature, along with the paper itself by Kenneth Vernmark, Petter Pearson and their team. It's the news now and reporter Dan Cressy joins me in the studio. Welcome, Dan. Hello, Kerry. You've brought us an update on the animal tree of life, which we'll get to in just a bit. But this week's lead story is a selection of personal takes from researchers whose lives have been touched by Brexit. Uh, We should start with the Brexit latest for our international listeners. What's happened this week? Well, this week, everyone is expecting that the government is going to trigger Article 50 on the 29th. And that is basically the formal process of leaving the EU. So last year, the UK voted and the majority of citizens who voted said they wanted to leave the European Union. And now the government is basically going to press the big red button that tells Europe we are leaving. That does make it sound a little more certain, but the situation for science and for researchers is still a little bit feeling away in the dark, right? Researchers know what they're worried about. They're worried about their funding because they currently get a lot of money from European Union sources. And they're worried about their staffing because a lot of scientists who work in the UK do so or are currently allowed to do so because they are European Union citizens. And no one knows how that's actually, whether that's still going to be the case in future. Now, in the news section this week, you profile a few scientists and researchers who've talked to you about their worries, hopes, dreams, fears for Brexit as the UK uh, triggers Article 50. Uh, What are some of the takes that you that you collected? You and your colleagues, I should say. Yeah, this is a team effort from uh, people in London and across the uh, European Union from our various different reporters. And some of these uh, people are taking a very positive approach. Uh, One is Simone Imler, who is taking up a job at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. She is Swiss and she's moving from Sweden. So she's very much one of these kind of European citizens who, who is very mobile. And she's still coming to the UK. She's taking a kind of glass half full approach. And she says she's generally optimistic. Um, And she doesn't think that she's going to have to leave again at the moment because she says life would have to become very difficult for non-Brits in Britain and hopefully we're quite far from that. There is some of that kind of we're just going to get on with it, we're scientists and we're just going to do our science. So Simone's finding room to be optimistic about her future and her husband's future working as scientists in the UK. Uh, Not necessarily the case for the guy who's running um, the EU-funded Joint European Taurus Fusion Project. That's right. Ian Chapman, who is the chief executive officer at the Cullen Centre for Fusion Energy in the UK, he uh, basically is spending about half his time dealing with Brexit. He's got a lot of European staff who are understandably worrying about what what this means for their jobs. They get a lot of European funding because it is the EU-funded joint European Taurus. And Chapman says that some of his top staff have accepted positions elsewhere. And that kind of uncertainty over what's going on is driving some of that. 
So he's having some difficulty recruiting and one assumes that perhaps other destinations in Europe are somehow benefiting from scientists choosing to go to other countries over the UK right now with this atmosphere of uncertainty. Yeah, we have another interview with Jerry Gilmore, who works at the University of Cambridge, and he is probably going to be put out of a job as a result of the UK leaving the EU. He coordinates Europe's optical infrared coordination network for astronomy, and and he thinks he's going to have to hand control of that over to an institution in a state which remains a member of the European Union. Are there people elsewhere in Europe who are ready to, I don't know, seize the opportunities that this might create? I think that would be fair to say, yeah. There's um, there's a feeling that if scientists are going to be less attracted to the UK, they're not just going to sit around at home and not do anything. They're going to look for jobs elsewhere and, and people are looking to capitalise on that. And we've seen this not just in science, but in other areas, places are angling for UK businesses to move to to European headquarters. And that's true for scientists as well. These are highly mobile, highly sought after people. And if they decide to up sticks and move, there are going to be people competing for their signatures. Now, there may be listeners who are, frankly, sick of hearing about politics. And much as we appreciate, Dan, you bringing this story to us, we're going to go back now millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, to the controversial branches of the early animal tree of life. What is controversial about this? What's really controversial about this is what order these branches come in. So obviously, if we go back way past your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents, all the way back to like the ancestor that you share with all the other animals, like which is jellyfish and other fish and all sorts of weird things... Um, the real question that a lot of people are trying to work out is which of those branches of the animal kingdom kind of split off first. And the row has really boiled down to sponges and comb jellies. Can I ask first, before we get on to the sponges and the comb jellies, why evolutionary biologists are particularly interested in this question? Understanding how things evolve is, is is obviously really important. And also, traditionally, the way that people have worked this out, like what split off first, was they looked for the simplest creatures. And they said, oh, that's sponges. Look, they're really simple. They must have split off first. And then all of the other animals went on um, and became these wonderful, complicated things like you and me and vaguely bilateral creatures. If it's not the simplest things that evolve first, that must mean that Either some of the things that you view as complications have evolved more than once or that sponges maybe lost them. So so back to the two stars of this story, sponges and comb jellies. They're the ones kind of vying for position at the very bottom of this tree, as I understand it. Yeah, and for a long, long, long time, zoologists thought that sponges were clearly on the bottom because they're like squishy, simple things. And lots of angry sponge biologists will probably write in now to tell us that they're not simple and they're really interesting. And sponges are awesome. Let's put in that caveat. But in 2008, Nature published a paper that said comb jellies should be put at the bottom, not sponges. And that like team comb jelly came and they took the crown from the sponges. And that basically has kicked off an ongoing war is probably too strong a term, but kind of exchanges which said, no, it's sponges, no, it's comb jellies. And we've now got to the latest point in this. What was the evidence for either one of them being at the bottom of the tree? This, this paper that was controversial had to do with the genetics. Right. So in what's basically happened here is that it used to be just like, oh, that looks simple, and I am horrifically oversimplifying this. And then we started to get genetic analyses, and these are horrifically complicated things to do. And depending on how you do them, depends on which animal drops out first at that bottom of the tree. 
What's the latest analysis added to this picture? The latest paper uh, bills itself as the largest and most internally consistent metazoan scale superalignment to date. Basically, what that means is they crunched an incredible amount of genetic data uh, compared to previous studies to try and work out which species did branch off first in the tree of life. And this time, they take it all the way back and they say, "You ready? You ready for the big Not reveal?" Not ready. I'm ready now. It's the sponges! So it was sponges, then it was comb jellies, now we're back to sponges. And again, this is based on an, on genetic evidence uh, rather than the morphology of these things. So it's looking at how similar um, maybe genes and, their mut- and mutations in genes are between all these thousand, basically over a thousand different species. That's right. But as one person we quote in the story says, they've got a large data set, but almost certainly this is not the final word. The most important question of all is... Dan, are you on Team Sponge or are you on Team Comb Jelly? As a nature journalist, I'm totally impartial in this. And actually, whichever team you're on, the picture of the sponge at the top of the story is very beautiful, uh, as beautiful almost, almost as a comb jelly. Uh, you can read the story on nature.com news and check out the Brexit vignettes there as well. And while you're there, why not read this week's impactful feature on childhood cancers? That's by Heidi Ledford. This might come as a surprise to you because you're obviously an insatiable consumer of podcasts, but some people don't even know what they are. We want to join other podcast producers in encouraging people to share podcasts that they think are awesome using the hashtag tripod on social media. That's T-R-Y-Pod. Thank you to those who have already recommended us. That's all for this week. Come and say hello on social media. We're at Nature Podcast. And remember to vote for us, britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Or you can always help us out by leaving a review on iTunes. Next week, we're launching a brand new series of roundtable shows all about the grand challenges, problems that science will need to work with other disciplines to solve. The first roundtable discussion is on global mental health and ties in with World Health Day, which takes place on April the 7th, and this year focuses on depression. Look out for the show wherever you get your podcasts on Monday the 3rd of April. Till then, I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. Even on a budget... Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.